All right, First John, chapter two, verses one and two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for speaking to us clearly, revealing yourself to us, and giving us Jesus as our advocate, making propitiation for our sins. Lord, this is good news. Lord, this sets our souls at rest. It brings peace. And Lord, it brings a lot of joy. A lot of joy. Lord, we live in a broken world. Lord, sin still remains. It affects everything. Lord, it destroys relationships. Breaks them. But you are our Redeemer. And Lord, you restore things. And you give us hope. And so I pray, Lord, you give us hope through this word this morning. Give us real, genuine hope in the good news about Jesus Christ. Hope for those broken relationships. Hope for hard things. Hope for the struggles that we have with the sin that remains in our lives. And great joy. Lord, make us happy people. Make us really happy, joyful people who rejoice always and are constantly giving thanks for all this goodness that you have poured out into our lives and most of all for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So yeah, we're, our, we're in 1 John chapter 2. We've been talking a lot about sin as John has been bringing up sin um, trying to help us understand what it is and, and how we're to relate to it as it exists in our lives as believers. And I've written up some kind of clear sentences, but as I've thought about this, what I think John is really trying to do, and he's, he's doing a lot of things, and, and this is sort of off the record, he just wants us to fight sin. He wants us to go, go to battle with the sin that remains in our hearts and in our lives and, and put it to death. Not leaving any room for it to remain. And then when it shows up, he wants us to see it and confess it, trust Jesus for his death, paying the price for it, living in the good of the gospel, not being crushed by guilt and shame, knowing that he took it for us. And so we get up and we fight again. Trusting in our Savior. 
So that's off the record. On the record, what I'd say is there are two extreme views of sin that people tend to move towards as Christians. And again, remember, extremes. One view is to take sin lightly or too lightly. This view treats sin as if it's really not a big deal. Unless it's a really big sin that somehow affects your life in some serious way or somebody else's life in some serious way, and then, and then we'll notice it. But most of the time, this extreme view, just, it just takes sin real lightly, maybe not even acknowledging it as sin. People who hold to this view rarely see sin in their own lives and therefore rarely ever confess it to God and to others. This view of sin tends to give people a license to sin. We don't see it. We don't take it seriously. We take it too lightly. Therefore, we just engage. There's just this license to do whatever it is you want to do, whenever it is you want to do it, even though it's a disobedience to what the Lord has called us to. The other view of sin is to think of it and take it too severely. This view treats sin as if it is the worst sin, your sin. So let me back up. This view treats every sin as if it's the worst sin ever. The people who hold to this view tend to confess every sin they're aware of and even the ones that they're not aware of but they think they might be aware of. And so they sort of go down this road of this morbid introspection where they're just constantly confessing something whether they did it or not. And they also tend to try to help other people confess sins that they see in other people's lives. And when they do this, they tend not to be very gracious. This is called legalists in some ways. I'm not calling everybody this, but they, they tend towards legalism, thinking that they can control their life if they just say this, do this, don't do that, they'll be good with God. Remember, again, extreme. Before we jump into our text this morning, let me ask you, which one do you tend to drift towards? Licentiousness or legalism? And again, I'm just asking drift. I'm not saying that's who you are or any of that kind of stuff. Just, just where do you tend to drift? Are you more licentious or are you more legalistic? If your heart right now, or if in your heart right now you're not at the least offended by me asking this question, and you're having a hard time coming up with any real sin in your own life, I'd say you probably tend towards the licentiousness. But if you're kind of offended at me in the way in which I'm talking about sin, maybe you tend towards being just a little legalistic. Now, before I offend everyone here, let me just say, as believers... As men and women who have been saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, we all sin. And we're all forgiven. And again, I'm talking about believers. We're all forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. That this sin or your sins do not define you as a believer, but instead we find our identity in Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins. But the reality is sin still remains in our lives. It's present in our lives and it will be until either we die or we go to heaven. Its power has been broken. 
but its effects still remain in some ways, and it seeks to rear its ugly head all the time. That's why I say off the record, I think John's calling us, put sin to death. Fight it, see it, confess it. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in Romans 6, 5 through 11. He said, for if we have been united with him, talking about Jesus in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the good of the gospel. We died with Christ. We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through faith in Christ Jesus. So though sin is a reality for us as believers, present in our lives, we have to be aware of sin. Well, as Paul says, we must consider ourselves dead to it and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're not called to pretend like sin doesn't exist in our lives. And we're not called to treat sin too severely either. And so what we're going to learn from our text this morning from the Apostle John is he's going to help us see our sin and how we're to rightly relate to it. How we're to live out our lives by faith, seeking to put sin to death, trusting that when we do sin, we have hope in Jesus Christ who is our advocate. And so we're going to look at this sort of main idea with three points this morning. In our first point, we learned this. Number one, we are never encouraged to sin. Number one, we're never encouraged to sin. John writes the following, verse one, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This phrase, my little children, it was a sign of just sort of this love and affection from the Apostle John to his original leaders. The Apostle John, at the time of writing this letter, he was an an older man, most likely in his 80s. He was a man who walked and talked with Jesus. He was most likely present at all of Jesus' miracles. He listened to Jesus teach him important truths about the gospel that he would then be called and equipped and sent out by Jesus to go and tell people. He was there. He saw Jesus get crucified. He ran to the tomb. He saw the tomb empty. And after Christ was resurrected from the dead, he spoke with Jesus. And so John, in many ways, would be a father of the faith to his original readers. Therefore, you have my little children. And in many ways, he is a father of the faith to us as well. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what to encourage us with. 
And he tells us that he wrote these things that are prior to this section of Scripture so that we may not sin or that we might not sin. And so when he says that, I just wonder, maybe as after he wrote that, I, like maybe he thought that we would be confused by what he had previously written. Maybe he thought what he had previously written in verses 5 through 10 would sort of lead anyone lead us into thinking that because these truths are true, that it's okay for us to sin. And so he just tells us, no, I wrote these things to you so that you wouldn't sin. So for the sake of review, let's take a look at what he said in verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, he said, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, Our God, what he's saying, is perfectly pure and holy. He is without sin. There's zero evil present anywhere in him. He's light and there is no darkness. Verse 6, he says, "If If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, we can't claim to be children of the light and at the same time be walking in sin that we're not seeking to confess and repent of. If we say we're children of the light, yet we live in sin, we make room for sin to remain, we don't ever repent of this sin, but just walk in darkness, he tells us we lie and we don't practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So as Christians, John's telling us, we're we're called to walk in the light. We're called to take those things in the darkness and just expose them to the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Bring them out to be seen and not sort of walking in those. Instead, we're called to walk in obedience to the Lord. We're called to do what God has called us to. To do, And then when we do those things, he says, you have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all sin. That's good news. Walking in the light strengthens our fellowship, not just with God, but with one another. Walking in darkness breaks our fellowship. So the encouragement is, walk in the light. Live in the good of the gospel. When we walk in the light, we have this hope of this promise that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, though we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, he's just trying to point out this simple fact. Sin exists in all of us. It's present. Christ died for it, and we died with Christ to it, but it still remains. We're no longer enslaved to it. Doesn't have control over our lives as believers, but it's there. But if you say it's not, and you act like you don't have any sin, in other ways, if you're a hypocrite, and you think you're perfect... John would say, you're deceived. And maybe the truth is not in you. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what should we do with our sin? 
If it's true that it's present, we're not enslaved to it. Christ has broken the power of it and we've died with Christ to it. But, but we still sort of live in this place where it's still there and it still shows up. What do we do with sin? We confess it. John's trying to encourage. We, we bring it out into light. We just expose it. We confess it to God and, and where appropriate, we confess it to others. What we don't do with it is we don't hide it. We don't pretend like it's not there. We don't make room for it in our lives. We don't celebrate it. No, we're called by God to confess it and trust that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This means, in reality, that as believers, we're called to live a life of continual confession and repentance and faith. We see sin, we do sin, we confess our sin, we trust that Christ forgives us of all of our sins because that's what John's telling us he does, that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's just this encouragement, bring it into the light, confess it, receive that fresh renewal, that fresh reminder that Jesus died for it. In verse 10, he says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, John is just driving home the point that sin is a reality in every believer's lives. It shows up. In some seasons, it shows up more than others. We sin in many ways. And if we think otherwise, we're lying to ourselves. We do not practice the truth. And so John's trying to get us to the point, let's practice this habit of confession and repentance of our sins regularly, not making God out to be a liar. You say, well, why would we make him a liar if we don't do that? Well, because God has already communicated to us that we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Our greatest problem is our sin. Our disobedience to the Lord. And when we sin, we're deserving of God's righteous judgment. We're deserving of his wrath. And so God, seeing our greatest problem, sent his only son Jesus into this world so that whoever would believe in him would be saved. And so we make God out to be a liar when we say, I, I don't sin. Because what we're doing in that situation is we're saying, God, I, I know you've communicated these things, and I know you sent Jesus, your only son, to take care of this problem, but that's not a problem I have. And so in, a, in sort of a real sense of the way, we're saying, God, you're wrong. Your assessment of the world and your assessment of my life, you, you missed it a bit. Because I don't actually need Jesus, because I don't actually sin. See what John's getting at there. When, when we deny the fact that we sin, what we're saying is, in a way, I don't really need a Savior because I'm perfect. I'm good. I can actually save myself. We make God out to be a liar, and we don't want to do that. We need Jesus. We need his perfect life. And we need a substitutionary death on the cross for us. 
because we're sinners and God has given us a great Savior. So if this is true, and I say it is, the question that John is seeking to clarify for us is, does this mean then that we're free to sin? If we've been given this great Savior in Jesus, and all we got to do is confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, does that mean that we're just sort of free to sin? And if it's so common in our lives as believers, how are we then to relate to it rightly? Well, this is why John wrote the following. He says, I'm writing these things to you, all of what I've just shared. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you wouldn't continue on in your sin. Being forgiven by God through faith in Jesus, it doesn't give us a license to go out and do whatever we want whenever we want to. It doesn't give us a license to just sin and keep doing what we want to do. Knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess our sins, John says it doesn't encourage us to continue to sin. John is writing this letter to us so that as believers, we would keep ourselves from sinning. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then we should be men and women who love the light and hate the darkness. We should seek to live in the light, in the grace of God, and by that same grace, seek to expose and get rid of all the darkness that remains in our lives. This assurance of being forgiven by God and cleansed of our sins by Jesus' blood, it's, it's meant to sort of spur us on to holiness. It's meant to create in us this passion to love God and to love the light. James Montgomery Boyce wrote the following. He said, the knowledge of such a great love and of such undeserved forgiveness makes the Christian earnestly desirous not to sin. I truly believe, based upon what John is teaching us here, that this desire not to sin, because God's love and his grace given to us, it's one of those things that marks a genuine believer. Now, what I'm saying is, is not that a person's perfect. I'm talking about what James Montgomery Boyce is getting at here, is that when we understand who God is and what he's done for us by sending his son Jesus to die for us, and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness freely, what that should do and what John is saying, it should produce in us this desire to live holy lives. See, John wrote this letter so that believers would know, this is at the end of his letter, chapter 5, that they would know that they believe in Jesus. And so throughout this letter, he gives us these marks of genuine Christians. And this is kind of one of those marks. A mark of a genuine believer is not somebody who's perfect, but somebody who sees their sin, confesses their sin, brings it out into light, not afraid to do those things, and has this God-given desire to do so because there's this God-given desire by the grace of God to love Jesus. You can't manufacture that. You can do certain things to kind of absorb these truths and put them into your minds, but, but that's a God-given desire. 
that's given to us by the grace of God. And I believe what John's teaching us here is that desire is present in all believers. Sometimes it's really high, sometimes it's really low based upon different things in our lives, but this is a mark of a genuine believer. Somebody who hates sin, loves holiness. This is why we celebrate confession and repentance of sin. This is why we seek to restore people in the church who have been disciplined by the church for their sins. We love when people repent. We love when people confess and seek to pick that cross back up and follow Jesus. This is also one of the reasons we end up removing people from the church through the church discipline process. People who are not repentant of their sins, but instead seek to live in the dark and not in the light. God's love and grace in our lives through faith in Jesus, it's meant to lead us into desiring and actually living holy lives as we grow freer and freer from our sin. This doesn't mean that we'll actually be completely free from sin this side of heaven, but it does mean that we can actually grow in holiness. And there should sort of be this expectation that we are growing in holiness, Now, there's an illustration I came across that kind of helped me with this, and I want to share it with you. And so if you can imagine just a blank sheet of paper, maybe you have one in front of me, you can do this right now, and you just sort of put a dot down on that sheet of paper, and that dot sort of represents sin in your life, okay? And then maybe a few spaces later, there's another dot that you put, and there's, there's space in between it, and then... There's another sin right here, and then another one is is sort of strung out. And what you'd have if you look at your life is you'd see a bunch of dots on the page, but they're sort of just spread out. Well, John Hannon in his commentary said the following. He said, this may be illustrated with a blank sheet of paper, a pencil, and dot marks on the page. If your sins are disconnected dots on the paper, the remedy is confession of them. If the dots are so interconnected, though, and here he's beginning to talk about just these dots not being spread out. They're just one right after the other, just so closely connected. By reoccurring repetition, accompanied with a lack of repentance over a considerable period of time so as to become aligned, it is indicative of an abiding principle. If such a state exists, John would raise the possibility that we're devoid of the life of God. I just thought that was helpful because all of us sin and we sin in many ways. But the question is, 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 is there confession and repentance? Are we looking at a line here? Or are we looking at just a bunch of dots that are sort of spread out? And so as believers, what I think John's getting at is, is there should just be some dots that are sort of spread out. But if there's just a line of dots because there's just a continual line of sin in your life that you're just continuing to allow in your life... He's saying, in some ways, the truth might not be in you because the gospel frees us from our sin to pursue holiness. And just think about your own life and how this works. When I first got saved, I barely knew what sin was, and I'm going to assume that's probably your experience as well. I'm sure somebody shared this with you, and you knew of sin 
in general. And that's kind of my experience. I knew I was disobeying the Lord. I was aware of some big sins in my life. And when the Lord saved me and I began to read his word and I began to be discipled by others and just paid attention to things going on, I became aware of the finer details of my sin. And began to see that I had a bunch of sin in my life that needed to be repented of. Not just these big things. And over time, that line, by the grace of God, started to to separate. I'm assuming that's true in your life as well. Well, year six of my marriage with Sarah, we experienced a line in our marriage. And we would just say that's the hardest year of our marriage, year six. We fought a lot. We struggled with selfishness towards one another. We never had a category for weaknesses. We only had a category for sin in one another's lives. And so everything just looked like a sin. And every time we brought something up, we tried to change one another. And there was just fight after fight after fight. And we also had a bunch of little kids at the time. But it was a line. But by the grace of God and the help of others we began to see some things that God wanted to help us. And, and slowly that line of selfishness, sort of as we started to confess it and repent of it, was stretched out into some dots. But sin still remains in our lives. What does sin look like in your life? Do you have a bunch of dots so closely connected that it's really hard to see the separation, that it kind of just looks like a line? And then you're not going to have to work too hard at this here. Like, you're going to know or you're not going to know. Are you hiding it or are you not? Are you making room for sin to remain or are you bringing it out into the open? What does sin look like in your life? You will never be completely free from from sin this side of heaven. But by the grace of God and the work of Jesus on our behalf, what John is telling us here is that we should be freer and freer from it. The gospel doesn't encourage sin. It actually encourages us to repent of it and to not continue to live in it. This leads us to our second point. If we do sin, we have an advocate with God the Father. And so John wrote these things so that we might not sin, but the reality is sometimes we do sin more than we'd like to admit. And then John wrote the following, which is so encouraging. He says, okay, I write these things so that you might not sin, but then he adds this but. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we sin, we're encouraged by God to draw near to him, confess our sins to him, seek forgiveness from him, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross in our place. See, the finished work of Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness and acceptance by God. And John tells us here that that Jesus, he's our advocate before the Father. An advocate is, is one who speaks on our defense or in our defense. It's a it's a legal term. So when you think about Jesus being our advocate, think of a courtroom where God is the judge, we're the guilty party, and Jesus is our advocate. He's the one God has called to defend us. He's the one who presents our case with all of its details to God, and he speaks on our behalf. See, if you're a Christian, you'll never defend yourself in this courtroom. And again, that's good news. Because Jesus is 
our advocate, and he will always be our God-appointed advocate. And it's not just for the moment when we first believed and got saved, but it's for every single day of our lives. Every single time we sin, Jesus is our advocate. And as our advocate, he presents our case to the Father faithfully. John Hanna writes the following. He says, The resurrected living Savior now stands in heaven for us as our defense attorney, our advocate, and our comforter. The judge who has been judged for us stands before the judge for us, claiming the efficacy of his self-imposed judgment as the remedy for all our transgressions. He's faithful. He's faithful to represent it. You want him representing you. And what I love about this, he doesn't leave anything out. As our advocate, he's not looking to make an excuse for us. He presents us to the Father as guilty. He does. He's not making an excuse for your sin. He's just, they're guilty. He's not like one of our lawyers today. He's not even looking for a technicality. He's not trying to get you off because you're ignorant of what you did. You sort of just walked into that sin. He's, he's not looking to blame anybody else. He's not going to present you to the Father as this, this innocent victim of your sin. He's not going to say, Lord, this, this person didn't know any better. They just sort of happened. They, they were the ones who were actually deceived. That's why they yelled and screamed. That, that's why they, they hated their brother in their heart, or, or that's why they slandered that person. It was an accident, Lord. Can we just let him off this one time because it was an accident? He doesn't defend us like that. He presents us guilty. Every detail. Just, yep, Lord, they, they did that. They did just that very thing. He, he doesn't try to get us off on this technicality. What he says is this person's guilty. He did it. This is the best part, but he's mine. And Lord, I lived in his place, a perfect life. And then I died on that cross and all of my blood was poured out as payment for that sin. See, we're forgiven not because we're ignorant, not because we were deceived, we're forgiven of our sin because God sent Jesus to die for it. And Jesus, our advocate, presents himself on our behalf. And the Lord forgives us because of Jesus. And this leads us to our third and final point. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the reason we can stand before God who is holy and confess our guilt for our sins and not be killed on the spot is because Jesus is our propitiation. I know that's a big word. It can sound like a funny word, but it's a very important word. To propitiate somebody means to appease or pacify his anger or wrath or to satisfy that wrath. My favorite definition, the one that helps me sort of get my arms around, came to me from Jerry Bridges. And he says, when you think about propitiation, think about Jesus exhausting the wrath of God. That's what he is when he says he's the propitiation for our sins. He's the one 
that exhausted the wrath of God that our sins deserve. So if you can think of a cup that's just full of water, and that water represents God's wrath. What Jesus did through being our propitiation is he drank it all, not leaving a single drop. Because when we say something's been exhausted, it means what? It's exhausted. There's none left. And so Jesus exhausted the wrath of God so that there's no wrath left for those who believe in him. And what this means is that he's not angry at you. Why? Because his righteous anger has been exhausted on Christ at the cross. This is good news because we feel like God's angry at us. We feel like, oh, he's, he's so disappointed. I can't believe you would do that again. So therefore, we cower and we don't want to draw near. But what John's saying is, no, you have an advocate. Don't hide your sin. Bring that out into light. Let Jesus defend you. Let him be your propitiation. Be reminded the wrath of God has been exhausted by Jesus on the cross. There's none left. It's hard to think through sometimes because when he died on that cross, he paid the penalty for past, present, and future sins. Exhausting the wrath of all of it. Freeing us then to continually draw near to the Lord. And when we think about this, what John is saying, therefore, then, is that that this should encourage our hearts in such a way that it doesn't give us a license to sin, but instead it motivates our hearts to put the sin to death in our lives. To seek to honor and glorify God with our lives. And and what he's getting at here in this text is that, that ultimately we trust Jesus. If I could have the band join me. We're going to sing one final song that that just reminds us of this. But as they're getting up here, here's what I want to encourage us to do as well. As we've just spent time in John, like the the call here is to, to bring it out into the light. To hide your sin no longer. To let Jesus be your advocate every moment of your life. And so as we sing this song, if you're you're aware of secret sin, if you're aware of hidden sin, if you're aware of patterns of sin in your life that that you're reluctant to confess, but you just kind of enjoy, they've kind of become your your pet sin, your go-to sin when things don't go your way, use this time to confess it to the Lord. And the other thing is what I would add, based upon what I feel like the Lord's been doing throughout our time here this morning is, is confess it to the Lord, but I'd also encourage you in this. Find somebody. Community group leader, friend. And share it with them. And I would say, if you're that person that they're sharing a sin with, remind them of Jesus, their advocate. Don't be their condemner. Be their encourager. It's the grace of God that anybody would respond and bring their sin out into the light. It takes courage to do that. A lot of faith. To trust that Jesus is who he says he is. 
and to trust that these things are really forgiven. And I would encourage you to do this, to bring them out in light because it's freedom. It's such a weight to have to carry things around. And I'm going to let everybody in on this secret. No temptation will seize you except what is common to man. People around you might not be sinning in the way that you're sinning, but those temptations exist in their hearts. You're not unique. You may feel unique because your sin makes you think that way. You're not unique in that. We all sin, and we all need a Savior, and that's why we gather. Because God has graciously given us Jesus, and he is our advocate. He died for us, to free us. So let's stand, let's close, let's worship. Arise, my soul.